Hey, it's Lynn Galadner, and this is the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm founder of the Your People Marketing and PR Agency, and I lead the Make Meaning Movement, a platform that helps purpose-driven visionaries and leaders do business with meaning. On this podcast, you'll hear stories of how people dare to take chances to live the life they want with meaningful work and purposeful days. There are many ways to fill your life with meaning. Join us at makemeaning.org to learn more. Now, on to the show. Margaret Trimmer is Vice President of Strategic Partnerships for Delta Dental of Michigan, Ohio, and Indiana, a dental benefits company that fully covers 9 million people in those states and supports the coverage of an additional 5 million people across the country. In that role, Margaret guides marketing, public relations, company culture, and community engagement, including the investment of more than $7 million dedicated to building a healthy, smart, vibrant, and inclusive community. Prior to joining Delta Dental in 2018, Margaret served for two and a half years as the president and CEO of Junior Achievement of Southeastern Michigan, a Detroit-based nonprofit that teaches young people how to manage their money, think and be entrepreneurial, and prepare for the world of work. Before that, Margaret founded and ran University Prep Science and Math Schools in Detroit, one of the highest performing charter school districts in the region. She directed communications for the Michigan Education Association, the state's largest teachers union, for 10 years. While there, she advocated and lobbied for resources, support, and development for the association's 160,000 public school employees. While at the MEA, she started a nonprofit called Your Child. Your Child is credited with revealing Michigan's lackluster culture of education and conducting a major public relations campaign designed to spur improvement. Margaret Trimmer started her career as a reporter for the Detroit Free Press, where she spent six years covering education issues and trends before leaving journalism in 1995 and going on to make a difference in the world of education, families, children, and communities. I'm so excited to welcome Margaret Trimmer to the Make Meaning Podcast. Margaret, welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. Thank you, Lynn. This is a real joy. I follow you. I've listened to so many of your interviews and been inspired. So I'm kind of excited. You're so sweet. Well, I feel like I'm sort of worshiping at the altar here because when I started researching your career, I was like blown away by everything you've done and the impact that you've had across so many industries. And it's just, it's really interesting that you've led advocacy, you've been in communications, you're, you're really fighting for children and communities. So I wanted to start by asking you what the thread is that connects all of your work experiences thus far. And then of course, What's the purpose that's driving your career, your internal meaning? So help me out there. You know, this is so exciting because when I turned 50, I sort of figured it all out. And that's already almost six years ago. Uh-huh. Um, but but I kind of intuitively knew what was exciting to me and what was purposeful to me, but I didn't really put a lot of definition around it. But to to look back, I would say a couple things. The first is that I believe I am on this earth to bring opportunity to people who want it, people who need it, people who typically don't get it. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's my superpower. And I don't really love that term, but I have a powerful network and I can help people with almost one phone call. I'm almost like one phone call away from the resources that people need to actualize on their dreams, 
to help with their basic needs, whatever it is in the moment, I seem to have the power and the capability because of the people in my world to make stuff happen. So opening the windows and the doors of opportunity, that is absolutely a theme from my work as a journalist to my work as a union advocate, nonprofit leadership, and now in corporate giving, which is the space I occupy now, I have resources that I didn't always have at my disposal in prior jobs. And so the other thing I think that is thematic about my life and my work is that I really don't have jobs. I have such passion for what I've really come to understand as my work. Mm -hmm. And I just am really fortunate that I can do my work for pay at some really great jobs over the course of the last 30 years. So (laughs) I I know what I do. I know why I'm here on earth and I know how to do it. And so, wow, I've been pretty privileged. That's awesome. So for our listeners, I just want to give a little bit of background. So I met you through the Civility Project when I started working with Stephen Henderson and Nolan Finley. And um, that's you know a project that's been amazing. And because of Delta Dental and because of you um, funding it, it's just been going gangbusters over the past year and a half. So, you know, that's how I first met you. And then, and I knew nothing of your background. I had no idea that you and Steven were journalists together and, you know, that you and Nolan were friends and just the whole history and everything. Um, And it was really interesting to me to see this corporate entity as Delta Dental funding such an amazing effort, this, this program that is really changing lives and, and really making an impact on our communities. And to me, that's such an interesting concept because it's, you know, it's corporate trying to, I mean, they're not even a nonprofit, like they might be one day, but, but really trying to, um, you know, I guess, inform the values of community and, and be a partner in making our world better. And it, and it's just, I, I find that so fascinating. So can you help me understand that perspective? Because I'm sure Delta Dental isn't alone in it, but they're certainly a leader in in affecting change in a really powerful way. And I'd love to understand what that thought process was and why you've been so passionate about it. And I also want to say before you answer that every time I facilitate these civility sessions with Stephen and Nolan and we play the Delta Dental video that, that you narrate, I literally well up and almost have tears and I have to bite them back because I'm on video and I'm like leading the program, but it's a 30 second video that every single time I see it, it moves me and it's from this corporate perspective, which I find fascinating. So tell me a little bit how Delta Dental is leading a charge like this and, and like connect all those dots. Well, I came to Delta Dental three years ago this month mm. and I came into a company that had a well-formed foundation for communicating Mm -hmm. and a well-designed foundation for Mm -hmm. philanthropic giving. Mm -hmm. We had a bit of a volunteer engagement program on the corporate side, but most of our community giving came from our independent foundation. Mm -hmm. And the work of the foundation is exclusively focused on oral and overall health, but really Mm -hmm. teeth. Mm-hmm. It's about access to oral health care. Mm-hmm. And the company mission was, you know, basically we do dental better and mm-hmm. really pushing for access to oral health care for large population of people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was coming out of a nonprofit junior achievement. 
And I understood that a lot of our donors were giving to us, not because they cared about teeth, Mm -hmm. but because they cared about community. Mm -hmm. And so I looked around at Delta Dental's customer base, and those were all of my donors in Junior Achievement. And I thought, how might we shift our corporate giving and really build a corporate giving program that complements the work of our customers Mm -hmm. and build successful communities where our customers can actually make money and succeed and find talent to do the jobs that they have available. So I spent my first six months broadening the We Do Dental Better to we build healthy, smart, vibrant communities for all. And that has enabled our corporate giving to become very strategic Uh and very compatible with our large customers. We're a B2B company. So Mm -hmm. we sell dental benefit plans to big companies and government entities. And they really want and care about community health, Mm -hmm. wealth, prosperity, economic energy. Mm -hmm. So that's how we became engaged in the pillars of giving. Mm -hmm. Um, My boss is an amazing guy who has given me the freedom to be a corporate force for good. Mm -hmm. And this is what it looks like so far. I'm very passionate about Detroit, um, which I think tends to show. I know Detroit is our largest market. And so I do a lot in Detroit, but Cleveland is a Mm -hmm. large market. And I've spent a lot of time down in Cleveland, Indianapolis, Columbus, Grand Rapids. We're really three states big. And there's a lot of communities inside those three states. That's amazing. I love hearing that corporate really cares about community because we don't usually hear that in the news. And so it's just really heartening to hear that. So that's awesome. Well, Lynn, I would agree that we don't hear it a lot. And I think Delta Dental sits in a very interesting corporate space as a corporate nonprofit. Mm -hmm. And in that corporate nonprofit space, we're obligated to give back Mm -hmm. to the community. And we don't pay taxes like other corporations. We also don't have shareholders like other corporations. So we have to do good as much as we have to do well. I love it. I love it. So let's go back to the beginning where you began your career as a journalist covering education. And then you set out to change education by working within it. So how did that transformation feel for you? And, you know, what did you learn along the way as well? Well, you know, I'm not a teacher. I'm not a certified teacher, never have been, probably could not do that job. That <laughs> is the hardest job on the planet Earth, I am convinced still. Yes. Okay? Um, but I spent six years covering education at the Free Press deeply. And I spent so much time in classrooms all around the country mm-hmm. and probably spent more time in classrooms than a lot of teachers in the development of their of their career and before they get their certification. Um, So I saw a lot of things and I felt I knew a lot of trends that were promising, but working at the teachers union at the MEA had limitations. Mm -hmm. Um, The the unions are not the first place you go to when it comes to innovation. Mm -hmm. Um, They were absolutely necessary advocates and I'm a firm believer in the necessity of unions, but I didn't see the place that that innovation fit. And Mm -hmm. I'm an innovative person. I feel like I'm a social entrepreneur. Uh And so I got to know a gentleman by the name of Doug Ross. Mm -hmm. And Doug was was working actually with Bill Beckham, Steve Henderson's Uncle Bill. Mm -hmm. 
Ah, to build a school system in Detroit, a charter school system that would address the chronic dropout problem Mm. in the city of Detroit. And on the eve of opening, Bill Beckham died. Doug Ross opened University Prep Schools, University Prep Academy, in the basement of a church called the Promised Land on the north side of Detroit. North. Uh, Wow. And (laughs) from there, he built an out-of-the-box model of educating kids. And he came to me, Mm -hmm. knowing some of the work I was trying to do inside of MEA, and he said, you want to join me? Mm-hmm. You want to start a school to fill the the gap of quality math and science education. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what the heck I was doing, <laughs> but I said, I am all in. And uh-huh. I learned along the way. You know, Judy Holler wrote a book called Fear is My Homeboy. Mm-hmm. And not the best book I've ever read, but the best idea that came out of that book was don't expect to be fearless. Mm-hmm. Try being courageous, facing your fear, stepping into the fear zone and taking it on. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a real example of doing that in the education space. And what did I learn? I learned that teachers and experienced principals are what it takes to run mm-hmm. extraordinary schools. Mm-hmm. It takes invested parents, absolutely, but with quality teachers and leadership that is experienced experienced and not a revolving door, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I learned that if you pay them well Mm -hmm. and train them well Mm -hmm. and support them well, they'll do whatever it takes. And Mm -hmm. that was our motto. And I just don't see that we treat teachers and school leaders and public education with the dignity and reverence that we need to. That's what well, I, I totally agree with you on that. I mean, I, um, I've taught at the college level for 20 years and my husband, um, works, he's an archivist for American Federation of Teachers. So, um, yeah, so he's at Wayne State University archiving all the labor teacher union, um, files, photographs, letters, et cetera. Um, so we're, we're big on that, but I, I just feel like education in America is so fraught and I don't know what the answer is. I don't know how we transform it so that, Every child has, you know, equitable access so that everybody starts at the same place. I, that's a big question. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, but I'm going to guess that you do because I know that you've seen all sides of it. And I just wonder if you have any thoughts about what's the answer here? How do we make it better? Let me tell you a little tiny story. It won't be too long. Um, <laughs> when I was running my schools and I was looking for donors, um, you know, you go to affluent places to find people who have money to give. Mm-hmm. And one of my affluent donors was very impressed with how well run our schools were. And I knew this person back when I was in high school and mm-hmm. he was a self-made millionaire and was very interested in contributing to my schools until I told him, oh my gosh, we have an international travel club now, and I'm going to make sure all of our children get to see and feel the global stage and travel outside the country and know what it means to compete with the rest of the world, right? Mm -hmm. And the first trip they're going on is to China. And he stopped in his tracks and he looked at me and he said, my kid hasn't even been to China. And you expect me to give money to send those kids to China? So then I think part of the problem is this view of my kids and those kids. And we're more than willing to afford terrific opportunities for our own children. We need to look at all children as Mm -hmm. our own children because 
if your children are not well, mm-hmm. the community is not only in jeopardy today, mm-hmm. but it's in danger tomorrow. What Absolutely. kind of future are we looking at if today's children are not safe, are not fed, are not learning, are not vaccinated? I mean, there's a whole yeah. array of yeah. things that we struggle with because we've somehow identified those children and differentiated them from our children. They're all mm-hmm. our children. Mm-hmm. And I think that until that mindset changes mm-hmm. and until we move away from this idea of scarcity, right? Mm-hmm. And if, if your child is smart and has more advantage than my kid, well, they might get that one good job and there's nothing left for my kid. Right. So we're kind of hoarding opportunity yeah. instead of growing opportunity and operating from a mindset of abundance. Mm-hmm. Let's create more opportunity mm-hmm. so that we don't have to fear the competition. Yeah. Um, I mean, I got yeah. a lot more I could say in the <laughs> wax philosophical for, for the whole night. But I think that anecdote told me everything I needed to know about our problems. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. I mean, I, we do have this competitive nature in America. And it's all about, you know, that if I have something, then you can't or vice versa. But there's enough to go around. I mean, there always has been and there always will be. And it is a mindset. I mean, it's interesting. On another episode of this podcast, I interviewed a government minister in New Zealand. Um, and she was talking about how their goal is to be the best nation on the planet to be a child. So that's the goal for the government. Now, there are 5 million people. That's all. It's an island nation. So it's a little easier than when we're 300 million people. But but I love that. And so if that's the goal and that's the shared value that everybody's governing with, then everything you do speaks to that. And if your children are happy, nurtured, cared for, safe, and well, then your future is golden because, you know, they're not trying to make up for something that they never had. Yeah, but but we have this got to have it now mindset, right? The instant gratification. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why we fill prisons Mm -hmm. instead of fill hearts, minds and and seats in preschool, right? Right, right. right. We we don't have a long term goal, vision, mindset. And, you know, I I don't know how you change the culture. Um, But I would think We've gone through this cataclysmic year. Yeah. Uh, you know, everything has been turned upside down. This mm-hmm. is a perfect time to change and course correct. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm afraid we won't, yeah. but it's a golden opportunity. And education, I think we've all seen the strengths and the weaknesses because we've had to hone in and parents have had to do a lot yeah. to get their children through. They've seen a lot more about the work of teachers. Right. Um, you know, you would think it's an eye-opening, life-changing and you know your guess is as good as mine but i'm a little i'm not i'm not super optimistic that we'll do what we need to do unfortunately i'm not either and i know we're at this really pivotal time in america it sounds like you think the single most important issue we could address right now would be education or do you think there's something bigger than that well i think that the the yes i think education from a political perspective mm-hmm. is is absolutely essential i think that you know understanding um, what inclusion and opportunity really mean mm-hmm. is also upon us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I look at the glass as always half full mm-hmm. um, and and an abundance mindset um, is a lot more joyful, is a lot more positive, optimistic, inclusive, all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess we all just need to be educated on multiple dimensions. So, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, I think so. So I have to mention that you embraced the pandemic by traveling by car over the past year. I've been watching you and uh, stalking you on social media because it's so cool and wish that I could have done that. Um, so tell me a little bit about that opportunity and how you chose your destinations and any lessons you picked up along the road. So a few years ago, I went to the Pacific Coast. And because I was there, I read Travels with Charlie by John Steinbeck, right? And I have a standard poodle, just like Charlie. It was a brown standard poodle. Mine is an apricot. And I didn't take her with me on my my tours. But I realized that you know, this was a golden opportunity to travel. I thought, oh my God, travel is my my drug and I can't do it. But yes, I could. I could hop in my car, go to a grocery store and be no more exposed than I would be at home. So I got in the car. I chose my destinations almost randomly. I looked at it as an opportunity to, to embrace creativity not through interaction with other people, which I usually would do. I'm an extrovert. I need people to feed my my engine, mm-hmm. um, but new environments, new scenery, nature, and, and plug into the lessons of nature. I took a lot of walks and climbed a lot of mountains, quite literally, wow. in, the, in the course of my journey. I had a few adventures, like getting stuck coming down a mountain at nightfall, oh my and, gosh. and I lost my orientation, and I couldn't figure out which way was up and down. The ranger <laughs> oh. was very helpful, <laughs> me down, and it's amazing. If you call 911, they'll know exactly where you are. The coordinates told them yeah. the exact rock I was sitting on, <laughs> um, so, you know, that was a lot of adventure, um, but but also, you know, Lynn, we get used to travel traveling from airport to airport and right. from airport to resort. Uh-huh. We don't necessarily know the highways and byways of America and the stories that can be told in the little communities and the large towns along the way. And I found that even though I couldn't interact with a ton of people, I could uh-huh. see the story of a lot of communities and patch together the story of America in pandemic times. I'm mm. a journalist by heart. I'll yeah. never not see the world through the lens of storytelling sure, um, sure. and gathering of information. So mm-hmm. a lot of things I did. I called it my Pan Am tours, my Pandemic America tours. I've got one more in me before I think we're going to start to show up back at work. And that's mm. I'm going to go west. So what were you, some of your favorite destinations that you've done already? Oh my gosh. Well, I'd never been to Martha's Vineyard and I got there with a, with a good friend and that was pretty epic just because it was our first foray out during the pandemic. Um, I did the Ironman bike loop in Lake Placid and I really Uh found that upstate New York is gorgeous Uh and I kind of knew that, but now I really know that and Uh I pedaled it and I can tell you it's pretty extraordinary. Uh Um, Vermont and I was tucked away in a little uh, Airbnb type of rental that was called the Treehouse. Mm. And I was in the mountains of Vermont and it was exquisite. And there are no traffic lights. There are no street lights. It's <laughs> dark as dark can be. Wow. And you just go for miles and miles before you come to a town. And then you pass through a town. You don't even know you were there because there was like not much. Wow. Um, so the rural nature of Vermont and all of the beautiful um, signs, the hate has no home here and the Black Lives Matter were just all over Vermont. It was politically a space I felt was loving mm-hmm. and attentive to diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I also, the Smoky Mountains, the morning after a fresh snow, um, I hiked to the top of Mount Lacante, mm-hmm. and I don't think I've ever seen more exquisite beauty mm. ever, mm. anywhere. And it wasn't the highest mountain, uh-huh. but that fresh snowfall, oh my God, it was wow. epic. Oh. 
Well, I would love to to t- uh, tag along with you, and that's some of these destinations are definitely on my bucket list. So, adding it to the list, and you know, as a voyeur, sort of living vicariously through you. So well, I post the- a lot on Facebook. So yes, I love that. Thank you. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. It's awesome. So on this show, we focus on how people make meaning in life and find purpose in work. And I always close episodes by asking my guests what advice they would offer to our listeners about how to go and discover your meaning and then put it to work for you. So I wonder if you have any thoughts for our listeners today. Well, Lynn, the first important thing I did when it came to really constructing meaning was defining my core values. Mm -hmm. Um, And I spent my 49th year, 50th year, 49 to 50, Mm -hmm. really analyzing what mattered most to me. And if I stripped everything in my world away and had to hone it in, hone it down to four or five Mm -hmm. um, key values that I could not live without, Mm -hmm. um, they've changed a little bit since that exercise, but they're still the drivers of everything I do. And my core values are courage, growth, hope, gratitude, and connection. Mm-hmm. And I used to define my values more around the things I do, mm-hmm. like adventure, influence, mm-hmm. um, and achievement. But now these are who I am. Mm. I am courageous, and I want to always be. I am hopeful. I couldn't get up in the morning if I didn't have hope. It's not mm-hmm. faith, because I'm not particularly religious, but hope, mm-hmm. growth. Every job I choose, every friend I have, I look for that opportunity to grow from them. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, going on and on. But I think that that's my anchor. And okay. that's how I define um, success uh-huh. and um, how I choose to follow pathways forward. So um, before we close, can I ask how you came upon these core values? Was there an exercise you went through to discover that? Something that other people could implement? Well, so I love supporting entrepreneurs and a friend of mine was starting her own coaching business Mm -hmm. as I was turning 50 Mm -hmm. and five other women were in that same general life space. So we were her guinea pigs. She was our coach and she tested different exercises and different um, group activities and such. And one of the activities was so simple, it's silly, but it was 250 words on a piece of paper, Mm -hmm. circle 25 that resonate with you cross out five, cross out five more until you get down to five values that you could not live happily without. Hmm. And, you know, I changed it around. I crossed out this one. No, I circled it back. You know, I went through a few weeks of really deeply thinking about those 250 that I was whittling down to five. Mm -hmm. Um, And I found that these five, they're all that. These five work very well for me. And the exercise, how simple can you get? Right, right. On paper, but really deep. Oh, I love it. Mind and heart. Love it, love it, love it. Well, Margaret Trimmer, thank you so much for being on the Make Meaning Podcast. It's been such an honor to talk with you. Thank you. I am thrilled, Lynn, and I really appreciate that you asked me. Thanks for listening to the Make Meaning Podcast with Lynn Galadner. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what you've heard here, join us over at makemeaning.org to discover how you can add more meaning to your life. And hey, if you like our conversations, please subscribe and share this episode with the meaningful people in your world.